Hello and welcome to yet another episode of the AABIP podcast. On the podcast, we discuss uh, interesting and often controversial topics with invited experts on which we usually seek their opinion uh, on how they approach a particular problem. Uh, for today's uh, topic, we have decided to uh, pick the brains of an IP giant. Fabian Maldonado is a professor of medicine and thoracic surgery, professor of mechanical engineering, biomedical ethics and society core faculty at uh, Vanderbilt, where he also serves as the uh, IP program director. Uh, Fabian, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and thank you very much for the kind introduction. Uh, I am certainly not uh, a giant in IP, but, <laughs> but thank you anyway. Um, all of these other things by uh, serendipity more than, uh, more than hard work, but uh, thank you very much for the kind introduction. I appreciate it. Ooh. When Otis was on, I called him a dinosaur and I called you a giant. So I think, I think with the two of you all... Like how I feel right now, yeah. <laughs> all right. So uh, today's topic is going to be approach to tracheal stenosis and benign uh, subglottic stenosis. Uh -huh. And uh, for this topic, uh, do you have any relevant conflicts of interest to disclose? I, I might. So we're in the process of trying to secure a grant to study um, uh, cryospray as a way to prevent recurrence in idiopathic subglottic stenosis. And mm -hmm. so that, that may be an upcoming conflict, which is not finalized yet. Okay. So, you know, uh, speaking about cryospray, let's jump into the first question that I have for you. Mm -hmm. So in patients with simple tracheal stenosis, so, you know, somebody who has a short segment involvement, uh, if, if it's either a scar, a web, a granuloma, but, but no malacia um, associated with it we usually do endoscopic interventions as our first line approach. Mm -hmm. uh, so what tools do you use and how do you decide what tool to use based on the morphology of uh, the stenosis? Right. So, so I think the, the way you frame this is, is correct. You know, you, you have uh, um, simple stenosis as defined by the absence of, you know, cartilage, uh, architectural uh, abnormalities. You have primarily a mucosal and submucosal uh, disease that is relatively short segment. And as, as you pointed out, I think the vast majority of people would consider some endoscopic management initially and the, uh, for good reasons. I mean, there, there is a significant amount of uh, patients that recur, um, but a lot of people don't, right? And so uh, even after uh, purely endoscopic dilatation, whether you add, you know, steroids with that, uh, the rate of recurrence is you know about 30% in three years, right? This is the based on the best data we have from one of my colleagues here at Vanderbilt, Alex Galbart, who uh, has published a, a number of papers on idiopathic subglottic stenosis, which is exactly the kind of case scenario you're referring to here, which is a short segment, typically um, um, stenosis of the subglottis that does not affect the cartilaginous integrity of the of the uh, subglottis and trachea. And so uh, because, you know, recurrence are common but not systematic, I think it makes sense to start with, with endoscopic management. Now, I trained at Mayo Clinic and I was at uh, on staff for, you know, uh, six to seven years after I graduated. And the vast majority of subglottic stenosis there were managed by our ENT colleagues and were very intimately involved with the management of patients. Uh, because we manage the medical treatment aspect of it. And so that management is probably important to point out uh, because in the large uh, prospective study that uh, Alex published uh, in JAMA 
I think a year or two ago, uh, uh, one of the three modalities that were evaluated were endoscopic dilatation and then on the other end of the spectrum, surgical resection. But in the middle, you get this very mayocentric way to approach patient, which is essentially uh, an endoscopic resection, uh, um, which essentially consists of cutting quadrants of, uh, of mucosa and not dilate, which in that particular study had uh, relatively little recurrence compared to endoscopic dilatation. Now that's a very myocentric way to proceed. Uh, Jens Kasper Bauer is really the one who's pioneered the, uh, this kind of treatment. And I'm not aware of, of other large centers that, that do that, but this is how I was kind of trained. And, and when I grew up as a interventional pulmonologist, that's what I saw. Uh, and so uh, this is not what the vast majority of us would do, which is rather to uh, use either uh, a laser, like a cutting laser, like CO2, which is great because it doesn't scatter, doesn't, doesn't cause inflammation beyond the area that you cut. It's very clean uh, a laser or uh, an electrocautery knife, micro knife, and cut do radial incisions to essentially uh, try to, to direct uh, where the tear is going to happen because the, the problem with dilatation is that you're going to have a tear somewhere at some point. And so being able to do these radio cuts really direct where these tears are going to occur and, and hopefully occur in an area that's not a big problem. So such as, you know, the anterior and lateral walls, uh, which are protected by cartilages and not the posterior membranes, for instance. So that would be my, uh, the way I would approach it, uh, uh, with, with, with the, Caveat that this is probably associated with more recurrence than, than the, the procedure that I mentioned earlier. So doing essentially radial cut, cuts, uh, two or three, uh, which are going to be at 12 o'clock, 4 o'clock, and, and 9 o'clock, for instance, and then use a dilation balloon, a serial balloon, and just dilate the, the lesion. Um, and, and if that works, I mean, if you get a kind of simple web-like fibrotic band that's relatively thin and, and like I said, does not, uh, is not associated with, um, you know, uh, uh, a loss of integrity of the cartilage and the structure, then you're pro probably going to be in good shape at least for some time. Now, whether you add, you know, a steroid injection to that, um, really that's, you know, um, dealer's choice, right? There's not a ton of uh, data, certainly no great data in idiopathic subglottic stenosis, perhaps a little bit more, uh, convincing data in, uh, you know, GPA, uh, uh, grain with polyangiitis slash Wagner's, uh, artists formerly known as Wagner's. Uh, but, but, uh, but again, a lot of the data we have in this particular type of disease is pretty, pretty anecdotal in nature. So in your practice, are you using steroids in patients who do not have a systemic inflammatory disorder? So it depends. Depends on the weather, my mood of the day, whether I'm in a hurry or not. Uh, you know, I think there, there's okay data for, for GPA, uh -huh. maybe some minimal data for post-intubation cuff injury, tracheal stenosis, and, and probably no data supporting its use in idiopathic subglottic stenosis. So uh, the, the, I would use steroids when the patient comes back and there's no good option for a, a more definitive alternative, such as surgical re resection with reanastomosis, and there's a lot of inflammation there, uh, then I would think about it, yeah. So typically, catalog 40 is what, what we use, like everybody else. Again, no, no great, uh, great data to support this, but, you know, we try to do the best. And then we give steroids during the procedure, you know, 8 to 10 of decadron. Um, and then one thing that we did at 
at, at Mayo, um, um, I, I keep talking about this because this is where, you know, most of my experience uh, uh, was uh, and, and quite different than the one I have here at Vanderbilt where we co-manage actually these patients from an endoscopic treatment standpoint with ENT. I just actually uh, did a case this afternoon, right? That's where I'm coming from. We did a combined case with Alex Galbart where uh, there was a subglottic stenosis uh, uh, in the patient who had prior tracheal resection uh, for, for cancer without recurrence and then a left main stenosis. So, um, so we do a lot of these cases together, but also co-manage these patients with tracheal stenosis them, uh, themselves. And so, uh, you know, there's a little bit of variations in how we, we deal with these. Um, so um, um, the medical adjunct treatment that, uh, that folks were using at Mayo when I was a fellow that I got interested in was to add, um, you know, systemic um, not systemic, but uh, inhaled corticosteroids like fluticasone 220 twice a day, uh, and then uh, an aggressive regimen of, of anti-reflux medication, typically PPIs. Uh, and, uh, and then we added, uh, for those who could tolerate it, Bactrim based on some uh, old data that Bactrim perhaps has an immunomodulating effect uh, in GPA preventing you know, recurrence, particularly tracheobronchial uh, inflammation. Uh, but also there is some suggestion, at least in idiopathic subclinic stenosis, that, um, you know, recurrences are facilitated by uh, bacterial infection, staph uh, infections in particular. And so the idea is that perhaps there is some effect there. And so when I was a fellow, I was kind of intrigued by this regimen. So I looked at the data. We had 110 patients. Back then it was by far the largest uh, uh, retrospective study on idiopathic subclinic stenosis. Mm -hmm. And comparing four groups, those that did not have any adjunct medical treatment, those that just had uh, the inhaled steroids, then a group with inhaled steroids and PPI, and then the third group with all three medications. And lo and behold, there appeared to be a significant decrease in, in recurrence with this tritherapy. So when you look at the JAMA paper that I quoted earlier from Alex Galbar that was uh, published, I think a year or two ago, maybe it was more recent than that. I have it somewhere. Um, I'll check that. Last year, 2019. Um, the, uh, the, the group of patients that uh, belong to that category of endoscopic resection with medical treatment, that's the Mayo experience there. There was 120 patients in that group, uh, so not a huge group, but, uh, but that was associated with uh, less recurrence. Again, this is all idiopathic subglottic stenosis. So in general, I would say I don't typically do kinolog on the first go, particularly if you get a bland fibrotic uh, um, type process without a whole lot of inflammation as assessed by endoscopic appearance. Uh, if the patient keep, patients keep, keep coming back with recurrence and there's no good alternative therapeutic definitive strategy, uh, then I would use it then. And then if I did something in a patient who has active inflammation, which typically we avoid doing that because one of the risks of doing that is to extend inflammation and, and potentially cause more trouble down the road, including potentially jeopardizing some um, um, possibility of surgical resection down the road. So that's important. So, but if for whatever reason, for symptomatic management, we have to do something and there is some active inflammation there, I'll probably do the, the kinolog then as well. So if I have to just summarize this, so your approach to endoscopic management initially revolves around using a CO2 laser or electrocautery knife to make radial incisions followed by balloon dilation. And the role of steroids comes in only if there is evidence of endoscopic active inflammation and you use it for recurrence prevention. 
and, and if the patient keeps coming back right, with recurrence, uh-huh. regardless of, and I should add that I don't use CO2 laser. My ENT colleagues do. Uh, I okay. just with the electric cautery micro knife. I've used laser in the past. I think the knife is so, so nice and precise. Um, um, and uh, so, so I, I, I really mm-hmm. like it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you said uh, the use of steroids depends on your mood and the weather. And is it the same with <laughs> is it the same with mitomycin C? Well, no, that that doesn't depend on the on the weather. I never use it. <laughs> uh, I I've never seen uh, this used. Uh, I looked at the data uh, before uh, just because I was interested. I mean, conceptually, it makes a lot of sense to put some some low dose chemotherapy that's going to inhibit, you know, fibroblastic activity and extracellular matrix deposition. Uh, but from a practical standpoint, uh, it's so cumbersome to use these drugs. You got to take mm-hmm. a full range of precautions. I don't think anybody really does this. And if people do, they're, you know, they're rare <laughs> oddities. Uh, and, and then again, the data is just not there, right? I mean, the, this is actually a randomized study on mitomycin C. I saw that uh, when I was preparing for this webinar, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, one, one applications versus two applications, no difference at five years. Uh, and who knows whether there's a difference with a control group that didn't have you know, mitomycin C. So, um, yeah, I, I think mitomycin C is, is, Something we like to quote in, in textbooks and, and review papers, but uh, not, not used widely in practice. All right. So uh, when patients with simple stenosis recur, what is usually your threshold to refer them for surgery? Uh, so I, I guess this largely revolves around the timeline of recurrence, surgical candidacy, shared decision making. But how, how do you approach recurrent simple stenosis yeah, I, I think this is one of the areas in our practice, uh, you know, like empyema management and then mm-hmm. complex pneumothorax management and, uh, you know, areas like this where you need to have a really well thought out uh, multidisciplinary approach to the problem because it is it is a tough problem. And there's so many factors uh, that need to be taken into account, not the least being, you know, what patients are willing to consider, right, for, for their care. Um, but, you know, it, there's kind of extreme case scenarios where you have, you know, patients that are not candidate for surgery because they have so many comorbidities and uh, that, uh, that it would not make sense. In that particular case, we will continue to manage endoscopically as best we can, uh, escalating the level of kind of aggressive interventions to make them able to uh, breathe and have some quality of life uh, with the, on the other end of the spectrum, young and healthy, you know, uh, premenopausal females that are, you know, um, thin and active and want a definitive treatment for whom surgery is, in my opinion, always the best uh, definitive management. So, um, um, you know, again, every, and every, all the shades of gray, uh, in between. And so, uh, you know, if, if somebody recurs, I typically take one shot at this myself. So I will have, I, I don't have chronic patients with, uh, tracheal stenosis and idiopathic subglottic stenosis in particular, uh, that I have kept in my personal clinic for years, uh, without having at least uh, discuss the case at length with one of my ENT colleagues. Again, we have the luxury at Vanderbilt to have, you know, um, uh, a team that is one of the most experienced in dealing with this type of issues. And so it'd be a shame not to, not to ask them for their opinion to begin with, because mm-hmm. I always learn um, uh, they're doing a lot of translational and clinical research on this particular problem. So there's always, you know, 
whatever clinical or translational study they're doing that patients may be uh, eligible for anyway. Uh, but yeah, there would be a discussion there. And, and then, um, you know, because again, if you're, if you're able, if patients are a good candidate for tracheal resection, um, I mean, this is riskier than endoscopic management in terms of recurrence. I mean, it's mm -hmm. dramatically better, right? So uh, again, I keep coming back to that 810 prospective study, idiopathic subglottic stenosis study, uh, but the, the recurrence rate uh, at, at three years for resection was like 1%. Mm -hmm. only, only one patient in that study. Yeah, exactly. So, so versus, you know, uh, 30%. Uh, for um, you know, for endoscopic management, and that's that's a low number. Again, it's it's perspective, so it's hard to uh, you know to to quote other studies that are going to be retrospective. But in in our 110 patient study at Mayo, the rate of recurrence at five years was 60 percent, and I think in general that's that's more in line with what other people have reported. But mm -hmm. the point is, if there's a, you know potential that is not too risky for definitive treatment that will guarantee the patient to have uh, long-term good outcomes, uh, then why not, right? Mm -hmm. So, so uh, the, the only caveat with that is that it, with regards to idiopathic subglottic stenosis, subglottic stenosis in general, there is a slight uh, increase in, in voice changes that can be an issue down the road that you don't typically get with endoscopic treatment. So that's something to take into account if, particularly in patients who have, you know, we live in Nashville, so we got a lot of, you know, people that are very careful with their vocal cords. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that, you know, that becomes a big issue for some people. So, yeah. uh, and if that's the case, I, I don't even mess with it, right? I will, I will definitely have uh, the, the, the ENT folks uh, take care of these for me. So again, if I have to summarize this one more time, so it's usually around the second recurrence where you're, you're thinking that patients may need surgery, but you're emphasizing that multidisciplinary approach to this is the key. Yes, I think multidisciplinary approach is key, right? So if there's a, if the, you know, it's, it's, it's always, um, you know, um, um, IP, ENT, thoracic surgery and anesthesia considerations that, that, that should kind of draw, and of course, in the center of, of this group is the patient and what they're willing to consider as part of their, you know, of their treatment. Um, but yeah, I think from the get-go, this should be a multidisciplinary approach to, to treatment. But for sure, once the patient recurs, particularly if it's going to be an early recurrence or if the uh, the outcome is suboptimal. You know, some patients come in with this bland, thin, fibrotic, web-like, concentric uh, narrowing at the subglottis, and you do radial cuts to dilate, and it looks normal, and they never come back. So th there's a subset of patients that clearly don't need a whole lot more than that uh, mm -hmm. for, for everybody else, particularly when it starts getting more complicated and, and you get some malaysia associated with it and uh, and some cartilage abnormalities, then, then I think... Really, from the get-go, you should you should discuss this with with the ENT. We should discuss this with with the ENT. Mm -hmm. So, what you're getting to is that complex tracheal stenosis, which is long segment cartilage damage, malacia. Uh, gold standard of treatment is usually surgery in someone who's a surgical candidate. So, when I when I've been seeing these patients in my limited experience, they always come in to the ED. So, nobody's doing an emergent surgery on them. When I prompt them, uh, there is really minimal role of cutting something or dilating it and hoping that it'll stay dilated. So I'm invariably placing a stent as a bridge to surgery. Is this something that you see in your practice a lot too? Or are you taking patients to surgery quickly or doing something different? 
Yeah, so, um, I mean, we do that. We, we use tent as a kind of uh, uh, temporizing. So stents typically will, will fall into kind of uh, different categories. So you get stents that are needed because there's no possibility of, of surgical resection and anastomosis, and you need to do something. Uh, and uh, so you put a stent in, um, which may be a definitive treatment with the caveat that these stents in the trachea, as you know, we did, uh, it, they, they tend to migrate, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they tend to migrate on Friday night when you're on call and you get a call at 10 o'clock at nine from an outside hospital mm-hmm. and patients in distress, right? It's always like this. And so, uh, so that's a problem. So uh, in patients like in this particular case scenario, we don't have, we don't have a great option for, for, for surgery for a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, there's two ways to try to avoid this. One is to try to fix the, the stents uh, anteriorly by just suturing it mm-hmm. uh, anteriorly with a button uh, on, on, the, on the anterior aspect of the neck or, or a T-tube if that's the, you know, the, the only other option because then it's anchored there. It's not going to move. Um, the other reason to, to put a stent in is, as you, as you mentioned, is uh, uh, the idea that, yes, there is a potential for surgery down the road, uh, but you know, clearly now is not the right time. They're in the ER and you're going to have to do something. Uh, so let's put a stent in as a temp- temporizing measure. I think that's absolutely fine with the one caveat that the stance, as you know, uh, you know, the trachea moves so much, you know, it extends and, and quite a bit during the breathing and with neck mm-hmm. movements until it causes granulation tissue. And that can become an impediment to uh, a clean and successful surgery. So not uncommonly, uh, surgeons will uh, ask to have a stent holiday before the surgery and whether patients may tolerate that or not. Uh, but, but not uncommonly, they ask for that. Um, there, there's two other good reasons to put stents in. One uh, would be as a, you know, you get a patient who has uh, tracheal stenosis, but they're also overweight and they have COPD or fibrosis and they're deconditioned and they've got some heart issues. Mm-hmm. And you really don't know what the contribution of the um, uh, tracheal stenosis is with regards to their overall sense of breathlessness. So like a stent trial. So, so in that particular case, putting a stent in to document that, yes, they do feel better, you know, uh, once you treat the, the, the tracheal stenosis, that may be kind of a nice diagnostic intervention that gives you a sense of whether the patient's going to improve or not. Now, there's issues with that, obviously, because everybody feels better after you do some intervention to them. Mm-hmm. We know that from, from a variety of studies where the placebo effect is huge. And so you got to take that with a grain of salt. But in somebody who's who's really debilitated and, and uh, breathless and has multiple reasons to be breathless, including tracheal stenosis, putting a stent in uh, and, and seeing what kind of impact we have on breathlessness may be a good clue or hint uh, that you may be able to help them by fixing it more permanently. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last case scenario where stents are helpful is when you have an early post-intubation uh, or post-trach um, you know, a cuff injury where you have cartilage, you know, fracture or breakdown or injury, like an A-shaped, you know, type uh, stenosis. If it's early enough, we have some data from, from, from the UK suggesting that if you put a stand there and you live in place, I don't know, I think it's in the study, it was six weeks or something like that, hmm. uh, paper from Sendu um, um, looking at post-intubation and slash or post-tracheostomy uh, cuff injury with cartilage fracture, putting a stand kind of like as a splint almost, 
to keep these cartilages in the right configuration for a sufficient amount of time, actually allow for healing. And then you might be able to put the stand and have a normal looking or subnormal looking uh, trachea. So that's another case scenario where stent may be useful. Mm -hmm. So two points that I want to pick your brains on, on what you spoke about. Just the second one first. So uh, the French study, you, you know, looked at patients 12 to 18 months later, uh, Durbing, the last author on that study, where they, in patients with A-frame stenosis, uh, they, they sort of anticipated airway remodeling would happen 12 to 18 months later. So, so you're saying that early on, there is a chance that, you know, if you, if you put a stent in early, remodeling can happen and, and in these situations, it might be worth even just taking the stent out to see how the airway holds. Am I am I yeah. saying that correctly? Yes. yes. So so I, I think you're referring from uh, to the French study with Hervé Dutot, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, he was the last author on that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so I mean that's not the study I was referring to. So mm-hmm. I, I think there's a window of opportunity after an, an acute or subacute uh, cartilage um, uh, fracture from you know, uh, either cartilage erosion slash destruction from the ischemic injury from an overinflated cuff. Um, I think there's a window of opportunity if you stent early that this may actually heal and kind of remodel around the stent. Now, if you have an A-frame stenosis uh, that's been there for, you know, five years, the chances of that healing in the correct configuration is is pretty low. Mm -hmm. Um, One you know, one important aspect of this a- long, long-standing A-frame stenosis, uh, which, you know, Hervé uh, and his group um, mentioned in that paper is that a lot of times you also have a lot of uh, excessive central airway collapse from mm-hmm. that posterior membrane, which now has, you know, it's not quite as tensed as it was. And so you get a very floppy posterior membrane. So what, what they've done also uh, as part of their endoscopic treatment in this situation with stand is not an option is to laser with mm-hmm. the YAP, the posterior membrane, just like some people have done, like Hervé really. I mean, he's the one who's done the most of these with, with Jean-Francois Dumont at the time mm-hmm. uh, uh, to you know, very superficial burns of the posterior membrane to kind of stiffen it and, uh, and, and keep that airway uh, slightly open. Again, that, that's anecdotal stuff. Uh, you got to be super careful if, if that's something you're considering. I don't think personally that it should be done uh, outside of a research protocol, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, but that's something that people have done, right, to stiffen that posterior membrane to kind of counteract that, um, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, A-frame stenosis-induced posterior membrane hyperlaxity, if you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, coming back to the stents and uh, mm-hmm. the complications associated with the stents. So I still am trying to figure out what my best practice is. So uh, I've had like two or three of these patients recently. And given the, the motion of the trachea or the larynx, and then we know there's a risk of migration with undersizing granulation tissue with oversizing, which yeah. is exacerbated in this area. What I've tended to do is use just not an oversized stent and suture it so that it doesn't migrate and doesn't granulate, but you still have to suture it. So I think in this situation, sizing stents is, is more important than, you know, in, in, in let's say um, mid-tracheal extrinsic compression from tumor or something where you have something holding it from the outside. Yeah. So, so how do you size your stents uh, in terms of the diameter and length selection? Uh, trial and error. I mean, I, you know, I think I think that's a that's a tough uh, tough question to answer. I don't think there's there's great ways to do that. I mean, you can look at the skin and look at the lumen above and below the 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 area of stenosis and try to get a sense of how a normal airway in that 
segment that is Stenos would look like. Uh, there's, uh, you know, stand sizers that you can use, mm-hmm. but I've never personally used that. So uh, I will typically, you know, uh, once you've dilated and you're able to go down with your rigid scope, whatever the barrel of that scope is, you know, you probably can can add a few millimeters and that's the size of your stent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're right. I think you're kind of between a rock and a hard place. Oversizing it will cause some, some additional ischemic injury and some inflammation and granulation tissue. And then undersizing it, you're for sure the patient's going to cough it out on Friday night when you're on call uh, or, or, or choke on it, which is certainly worse. Uh, and so suturing it is, is a good, I guess it's an okay option. It's just kind of a, uh, a, a pain to do and be, um, you know, patients don't really like to kind of walk around with a button, you know, sutured mm-hmm. to their neck. Uh, but, but that's not, not a, a terrible option. Uh, the, the other option would be to use an hourglass stent if you mm-hmm. get a, you know, focal enough stenosis. The problem is that you, you do lose a lot of lumen when you do that, right? So you can mm-hmm. use 16, 14, 16, and all of a sudden your inner diameter is much less. But they, I think they're a little thicker than the conventional silicon stent that we use certainly harder to fold to put in the stent loader um, but it's so but that's that's another kind of possibility uh, that will mitigate this problem of migration but that's that's the problem with with stent for sure i mean there, there's you know they're going to move at some point or another mm-hmm. and that's that's uh, in terms of the diameter what about the length how much uh, do you overlap on either side yeah, that, that's a little bit easier. So, you know, I, I'll just go from, from normal to normal on the other side, and I don't typically add anything to, to that. So, um, you know, you, you go down with your, your, your you know, flexible scope and you just measure, mm-hmm. you know, where, where does the uh, normal uh, lumen end and where does it start? And, and so, so the, the, in terms of length, I think it's a little bit easier to, uh, to determine than, than, than diameter. Mm-hmm. How do you do it? I usually roughly do a centimeter above and below because it's so rough, like, you know, putting your, uh, having the scope, you know, at the end of your rigid or whatever, and then pulling back, measuring it. I, I, I worry about undersizing it. So I usually go one centimeter above, one centimeter below. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I, just I, to get some margin. But again, my biggest concern is I'm doing this as a bridge to surgery. So if I'm oversizing my stent and causing more ischemic injury, yeah. I don't want to convert that disease to a non-surgical disease. That's exactly right. So, yeah. 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 That's, that's a big risk with any kind of endoscopic treatment we do. You know, if you, if you extend the inflammation uh, with, you know, cold, you know, hot therapies and, uh, and debulking of granulation tissue or whatnot, or, or, or worse even with a tracheostomy, uh, or, or uh, cause more ischemic injury with an oversight stance, is going to compress this capillary circulation, you know, in the wall of the trachea. That, that these are these are potential issues that will uh, potentially make the surgeon's life more difficult, if not jeopardize the the surgery altogether. So you're absolutely right. I agree with you here. Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned about not jeopardizing the tissue with hot therapy, basically heat damage. Uh, so uh, have you started using the cryo spray? You just mentioned that in the start of the uh, the discussion. So you know, uh, I've used it, uh, Otis. Uh, likes it a lot um you know the, the cryo spray i i got interested in it uh when i was at mayo we had a grant from the company at the time called csa they've been bought by a bigger company since uh looking at uh at cryo spray in the plural space actually so mm-hmm. uh, uh that that's what i you know i've used it for uh before i came to vanderbilt and here we i use it i've used it maybe 
four or five times since I've been here you know, for the past five years. Um, uh, my, my two colleagues, Otis Rickman and Rob Lentz, uh, like to use it a little bit more than I do. Uh, I like to use, you know, stuff for which I have some data, uh, but also, you know, there, there, were, there, there are some risks associated with with the cryospray, it's, it's mm -hmm. really under a lot of pressure. And as you know, there's the risk of, of, of pneumothorax and, mm -hmm. and their trauma and things like that. So, so you got to be careful and follow, you know, the rigorous protocol that the company has set in place that, that mitigate these risks. Mm -hmm. uh, but but the con conceptually, it's a very uh, appealing technique, right? Because you're, you're going to decellularize the mucosa and submucosa and leave the extracellular cellular matrix intact so that the idea is that, you know, that extracellular matrix is going to repopulate with healthy um, um, cells uh, and uh, and potentially remodel that airway uh, with normal cells that uh, that will not cause more issues down the road. That's that's the general uh, mm -hmm. general idea. And so there is one one paper on this, mm -hmm. which is retrospective. I think twenty one or twenty two patients. Uh, uh, by Dr. Bora mm -hmm. uh, that was published in, I don't know, 2015, 2016, something like this, where they looked retrospectively at frequent flyers that would come back for recurrence. And after institution of the prior spray, they tended to come back less. Now there's all the, the limitations inherent with this type of, mm -hmm. of uh, retrospective studies, but, but that's the data we have. And so what we're trying to do is is a pilot study where we're going to randomize patients to cryospray plus standard of care versus you know versus standard of care by itself, and 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 looking at uh, an imaging endpoint. That's the general kind of uh, idea uh, for the study. And so mm -hmm. I'm I'm hopeful that we'll get the funding for this and and start recruiting pretty soon. We have a pretty large uh, contingent of. of Patients with subclavic stenosis, um, uh, we do about three to five a week. And when I say we, it's you know eighty percent of these uh, managed by ENT and and uh, twenty percent managed by us. Uh, but but that's a fairly large population of patients uh, that uh, that hopefully we'll be able to enroll. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and Fez Bora left his cryospray behind when he left Mount Sinai. So I, I have it in my toolkit, <laughs> uh, but I've been resistant to using it in patients who don't have active inflammation. So I can't get my head over a fibrotic scar being treated with therapy that relies on water and tissue. I mean, I can understand GPA responding very well to cryospray. Yeah. Um, but, but how about something which is more like uh, scar-like, you know, that, would that respond as well? So looking well, forward yeah. to your data. I think that's that's absolutely true. I mean, I, I was just talking today to Alex Galbart, who does a lot of uh, translational and RNA-seq on idiopathic cyclotic stenosis, because as you know, there's a lot of uh, great data suggesting that the, the, the histological abnormality in, in idiopathic cyclotic stenosis is primarily a fibrotic one, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you get a lot of fibrosis, like a kiloid-type scar, and not a whole lot of inflammation. Uh, but there is you know, inflammatory pathways that are activated. And when you look at, you know, uh, inflammatory cytokines, they're all upregulated. And so, um, you know, th there, there is a sense in which, you know, the inflammation really drives the fibrotic response, even though when you, when you take care of patients and they're, you know, kind of become symptomatic and this thing has been dragging on for a while, uh, if you do biopsies, there's relatively little inflammation and a whole lot of, a whole lot of scars. So, so the idea would be that, yeah, there probably is some inflammation uh, in there, and uh, and maybe you'd be able to kind of treat that with the cryospray and prevent that from recurring. Again, 
zero data, um, I, I'd feel a little bit better when using it when we do have some data to suggest that it's helpful and hopefully we can run this trial pretty soon. Mm-hmm. I'm sure what's going to happen is we're all going to say that let's use a multimodal approach, <laughs> make yeah. superficial cuts and then treat the base with cryo so that you don't injure the mucosa. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> but in general, less is, less is more with this. Yeah. Thing, which you can get away with a simple dilatation with maybe a few radial cuts and that's all you need. That's great. Uh, I've taken enough of your time. If you don't mind, one quick question really at the end. Uh, in your management algorithm, do you do anything different in somebody who has a systemic inflammatory etiology uh, to the stenosis? So like, will you give inhaled steroid systemic immunosuppression a long ago before you, you know, do something or refer somebody for a surgical uh, consideration? Yes. Well, I, I, so in general, yes. So, so the, you know, the, the kind of the typical case scenario would be a, a GPA patient that comes in with, you know, a flare and they've got, you know, tracheal bronchitis uh, with, with stenosis, either tracheal and slash or uh, bronchial. Uh, we tend not to touch these patients in the active phase, actually. Mm-hmm. We'd like for them to be uh, you know, uh, stabilized, you know, with, with systemic management, whether, you know, it's rituximab or, you know, cytoxin. I think rituximab is since the rape trial, the drug of choice and, and steroids, obviously. And then, and then manage these, uh, uh, bronchoscopic, you know, bronchoscopically when, when the lesions have come down a little bit. Uh, so, so for GPA, there's no question that, uh, you know, uh, a treatment of the systemic inflammatory process is going to be very important. Um, the, the, the other, you know, uh, um, lesions such as idiopathic, you know, I mean, sarcoidosis would be another kind of case scenario, like sarcoidosis of the upper respiratory tract. Uh, you know, rarely you can get inflammatory bowel disease that will give you some tracheal issues like ulcerative colitis. Mm-hmm. I mean, all these systemic inflammatory condition, you know, connective tissue disease slash vascular disease uh, that, that can cause some tracheal problem, relapsic polychondritis included, uh, would, would probably benefit from being managed systemically first and then endoscopically uh, second. Uh, and then there's the whole, you know, what I just briefly mentioned earlier of the quote-unquote systemic uh, medical management of idiopathic subglottic stenosis, which you know, is what uh, we looked at at Mayo uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and has as good evidence, I, th- I think, as anything else we do in this mm-hmm. field where you had a reduction of, you know, with the tritherapy of Bactrim, inhaled steroids, and uh, aggressive PPI, irrespectively of, you know, symptoms and inflammatory markers, that reduced the uh, recurrence rate by, by half uh, in, in, in that cohort. Now, again, this was associated with a different kind of endoscopic management than the one we you know, we all typically do. So to be taken with a grain of salt, especially since it's all retrospective data and just like any of these studies, you know, the the number of patients was not huge, but 110 patients in that study. So, Amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Maldonado. This has been highly educational for me, as I'm sure it'll be for everyone listening to this. Well, thank you very much for having me and Merry Christmas to you. Likewise, I cannot thank you enough for your time. (music) 